Hello, this is Professor Tofano. I'll be talking about Chapter 11, Communication Climate. It's, this is Interplay, the process of interpersonal communication. I'm in the 13th edition, 13th edition, and this is on page 337. So Chapter 11, Communication Climate, page 337, and that ends at page 363. And then you have the study guide or check your understanding, which uh, is about two and a half pages at the end of the chapter. I do recommend that you read through the um, check your understanding section. I oftentimes choose um, quiz or test essay questions from this section. And also, you should study the key terms because those are also part of quizzes and tests. Okay, so communication climate, we'll talk about the chapter outline first before I start talking about it. So what is communication climate? Uh, how is communication climate, how does it develop? Creating supportive climates and invitational communication. So um, how communication climate develops. Page 338 uh, says here, how would you describe your most important relationship? Fair and warm? Stormy, hot, cold, just as physical locations have characteristic weather patterns, interpersonal relationships have unique climates too. You can't measure the interpersonal climate, interpersonal climate by looking at a thermometer or glancing at the sky, but it's there nonetheless. Every relationship has a feeling, a pervasive mood that colors the ongoings of the participants. So let's define communication climate. It refers to the social tone of a relationship. A climate doesn't involve a climate doesn't involve specific activities as much as the way people feel about each other as they carry out those activities. Like their meteorological meteorological counterparts, communication climates are shared by everyone. It's rare to find one person describing a relationship as open and positive, while others an, uh, characterize it as cold and hostile. Also, just like, weather, just like the weather, communication climates can change. It's rare to find one person describing it differently, for sure. I mean, normally, if if the climate is known to both parties, they would probably say, yeah, this is the climate and this is how I character characterize it. Now, it is true that uh, one partner, if this is um, a good friendship um, or a romantic relationship, in other words, one that has a greater level of intimacy, one partner may not be in tune with the communication climate. Um, just like sometimes we'll leave the house and go out and um, not check the weather and then find that um, it's hotter than we thought, it's colder than we thought, or in some cases there's precipitation. So I'm sure you've been there before. You didn't check the weather and then you go out and the next thing you know it's pouring rain and you're at work or you're at school or you're at some location and you have to get from your car to that location and because you didn't check the weather and you didn't know that you should bring an umbrella, you were unprepared, and the next thing you know, you're soaking wet. And uh, so you were totally unaware of the weather. Or it could be a bit chilly or cold, and maybe you forgot a jacket or a warmer 
um, outfit or some type of uh, maybe really cold you forgot a hat or some gloves or a sweater or a jacket those kind of things and so just like partnerships sometimes partners are oblivious to the climate and uh, not until it rains on their head and they get soaked or not till they freeze or not till they get sunburnt do they realize what the climate is and uh, similarly in relationships that can happen as well the communication climate may be known to only one party and the other party may be oblivious 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 to the current climate in the interpersonal relationship a relationship can be overcast at one time and sunny sunny at another no doubt about it unlike the weather though however people can change their communication climates and that's why it's important to understand them okay page 339 how climates communication climates develop how do some types of communication create a positive climate whereas others have the opposite effect essentially communication uh, essentially communication climate is determined by the degree to which people see themselves as valued so this has to do with the sense of being valued communicators who perceive others as liking appreciating and respecting them react positively whereas those who feel unimportant or abused react negatively so communication scholars have these two terms that you should become familiar with. One is confirming communication. The other one is disconfirming. So confirming communication describes the messages that convey value to the partner. They signal that you exist, you matter, and you're important. By contrast, disconfirming communication signals a lack of regard. In one form or another, disconfirming messages say, I don't care about you. I don't like you. You were not important to me. Well, that's what they say, so that's the voice inside your head as you interpret that interaction. That's just my voice. Okay, so it says here, it's hard to overstate the importance of confirming messages and the importance of disconform disconfirming ones. Children who lack confirming messages suffer a broad range of emotional, emotional behavioral problems, whereas those who feel confirmed have more open communication with uh, parents, have higher self-esteem, lower stresses, of course. The interpretation of a message as confirming or disconfirming is subjective. Is subjective. Now, as previously stated, communication in interpersonal relationships, there is a compromise that happens between the partners. There's accommodations that happens between the partners. There's collaboration between the partners. There's negotiation. There are boundaries and boundary setting, and there are boundary violations and there are boundary corrections and there are also expectations that need um, to be aligned so all those things are true and those are part of communication and interpersonal relationships so it is true that these um, there is some subjectivity and how these messages are interpreted Consider, for example, times when you took a comment that might have sounded unsupportive to an outsider, like, you're such a nerd, as a sign of affection uh, within the context of your relationship. Likewise, a comment that the sender might have meant as helpful, I'm telling you this for your own good, could be disregarded as, can be regarded or interpreted as a disconfirming attack, right? 
So those, those things kind of make sense. On page 340, there's an interesting figure, 11.1. It says confirming uh, through disconfirming continuum. This is an excellent um, figure. I recommend you stare at it for moments, uh, maybe up to at least 60 seconds or more. The top left, it says confirming. In the middle, it says disagree disagreeing. And then on the right, it says disconfirming. So confirming, endorsement, acknowledgement, recognition, and then kind of in that disagree, disagreement zone, there's argumentativeness, complaining, and aggressiveness. And disconfirming has impervious, interrupting, irrelevant, tangential, impersonal, ambiguous, incongruous. So those would be uh, non-valuing. And then on the left, obviously, would be valuing, right? These kind of make sense as we see them. Uh, these terms and these ideas written. Of course, when we interact with other humans, some of these things um, are part of our good habits or bad habits through our interpersonal relationships and communication. So confirming messages, there's no guarantee that others will regard even your best attempts at a confirming message the way that you intended them. Recognition, the most fundamental act of confirmation is to recognize the other person. Recognition seems easy and, uh, and obvious, yet there are many times we don't respond to others at this basic level. Failure to call or visit a friend is a common, common example. So is a failure to respond to an email or text message. Likewise, avoiding eye contact can send a negative message. So that is recognition. Next is acknowledgement. Acknowledging the ideas and feelings of others is a, strong, is a stronger form of confirmation than simple recognition. Listening is probably the most common form of acknowledgement. Listening, chapter 7. Hopefully you've read chapter 7. If not, go back, please, and read it. Listening. Listening is probably the most common form of acknowledgement. Attending and responding to another person's words in one measure is one measure of interest. Next is endorsement. Whereas acknowledgement communicates your interest in another person, endorsement means you agree with them or otherwise find them important. It's easy to see why endorsement is the strongest type of confirming message because it communicates the highest form of valuing. Next, we talk about disagreeing messages. Disagreeing. Between confirming and disconfirming lies a type of message that isn't easy to categorize. A disagreeing message essentially says you're wrong. It, in its most constructive form, disagreement in, includes two of the confirming components we just discussed, recognition and acknowledgement. At its worst, brutal disagreeing message, a brutal disagreeing message can be so devastating to another person that the benefits of recognition and acknowledgement are lost. So we'll talk about argumentativeness. Normally when you call a person argumentative, we're making an unfavorable evaluation. However, the ability to create and deliver a sound argument is something we admire in lawyers, talk show participants, and debaters. Taking a positive approach to the term, communication researchers define argumentativeness as presenting and defending positions on issues while attacking positions taken by the others. Rather than being a negative trait, argumentativeness, at least in the U.S., is sometimes associated with a number of positive attributes such as enhanced self-concept, leadership emergence, communication competence, to name a few. 
The key for maintaining a positive climate while arguing a point is the way you present your ideas, the way you present your ideas. So arguing and argumentativeness is not, not necessarily negative or bad or negatively impacts the interpersonal relationship. However, the way you present your ideas can be it's crucial to attack issues, not people. Focus on issues, not people. Very basic. So you're a jerk? No. The idea is jerky. No. <clears throat> In some cases, those things are hard, depending upon the climate, to really interpret that particular. So if you say your ideas suck, the person could say, well, you're saying I'm suck. All right, moving on to complaining. Complaining. When communicators aren't prepared to argue but still want to register dissatisfaction, they often complain. Complain. As it is true of all disagreeing messages, some ways of complaining are better than others. This researcher found that satisfied couples tend to offer behavioral complaints. Whereas unsatisfied couples make more make more complaints aimed at personal characteristics. So one example is um, you throw your socks on the floor. Now that could be a very accurate description of what the individual person does, but saying you're a slob is very personal, and that goes to uh, the character, and is often interpreted as a character. Assassination, and no one likes that. Personal complaints are more likely to result in an escalated conflict. The reason should be obvious. Complaints about personal character, they attack a more fundamental part of the presenting self. Talking about socks deals with a habit that can be changed. Pick up the socks, that could be changed. But how do you become a non-slab? Right? And they talk about John Gottman. I think we've talked about John Gottman before. If you haven't um, written this down, please uh, go onto the Google machine and uh, go dig deeper, dive deeper on this issue um, of complaining the four horsemen. I think we've talked about that already, but John Gottman um, in this book, if you look in the references, this is um, from John Gottman in the year 2000. Um, he's written lots of papers, written books, has an institute, you can look him up. But he deals a lot with marriage research. Marriage research. Some of you are unfamiliar with that. Um, it's an old ancient ritual where um, two people um, will make certain vows to one another in front of people, usually in a religious ceremony. Um, it's an old, old idea. Um, it's very dusty, and it's just... Um, Again, uh, if you go to the internet, you can find um, examples. Um, I think they have um, they have pictures on the caves about these ancient rituals. Uh, usually, it's in some type of cuneiform or some type of pictographs, but it's ancient. So, look up the idea of marriage uh, a little bit and see what that's all about. And then this guy, John Gottman, he um, studies that ancient ritual. But he studies uh, marital satisfaction uh, and uh, just um, satisfaction in general with individuals in, involved in uh, marriages 
And uh, so he's found that complaining is not a sign of a troubled relationship. Isn't that interesting? Complaining in itself is not the sign of a troubled relationship. In fact, it's usually healthy for spouses to get their concerns out in the open. Complaining is a relationship constructing tool. So, complaining in itself is not really the problem, is it? However, when couples' communication is filled with disrespectful criticism, disrespectful criticism, as opposed to mere complaining, it's often a symptom of a marriage headed for divorce or a shakaruni headed for a breakup. So it could be um, any of those, either one of those. Depends upon what kind of uh, physical, romantic, sexual relationship the, the couple is in, whether it be mirage or shakaruni. Um, if this complaining turns into disrespectful criticism, that's the problem. Okay, page 343, aggressiveness. The most destructive way to disagree with another person is through aggressiveness. Verbal aggressiveness is a tendency to attack the self-concept of other people in order to inflict psychological pain. Name-calling, put-down, sarcasm, taunting, yelling, badgering, even some types of humor count as um, this type of aggressiveness. It's no surprise that aggressiveness has been found to have a, a variety of serious consequences, and sometimes it's associated with physical violence. That's one of the, the, the worst types of responses to aggressiveness, for sure. Uh, one example of aggressive effects on communication found that students who perceive their instructor as verbally aggressive are less likely to ask questions, interact in the classroom, or seek out-of-class communication. So even if teachers, uh, or at least the students interpret their interaction or communication as aggressive, they may be turned off and then they won't uh, initiate conversations within the classroom. Kind of makes sense. It's possible to send clear, firm messages that are assertive, standing up for yourself, rather than aggressive, putting others down. So if we stick with the I statements and the <clears throat> I language, that will help. Okay, moving on. Disconfirming messages are subtler than disagreeing ones, but potentially more damaging. Disconfirming communication implicitly says you don't exist, you're not valued. You don't exist. Maybe one of the worst things that people can either tell us orally, verbally, or just act as if we don't exist. Disconfirming messages are unfortunately part of everyday life. Although an occasional disconfirming message may injure a relationship, a pattern of them usually indicates a negative communication climate. In pervious responses, they fail to acknowledge the other person's communicative attempt either verbally or non-verbally. Impervious responses are especially common when adults and children communicate. Parents often become enraged when they are ignored by their children. Likewise, children feel diminished when the adults pay no attention to their questions or comments or requests. Impervious responses also make it much more difficult for problem solving, no doubt. Interrupting responses, as the name implies, interu interrupting response occurs when one person begins to speak before the other person is through making a point. Irrelevant responses, is it's, it is disconfirming to respond with an irrelevant response, making comments totally unrelated to what the other person is saying. 
we have tangential responses. Unlike the three behaviors just discussed, tangential response does not acknowledge the other person's communication. However, the acknowledgement is used to steer the conversation, the conversation in a new direction. What I want to talk about, not what you want to talk about. Page 345, impersonal, I am impersonal. Those are responses where the speaker conducts a monologue filled with detached, intellectualized, and generalized statement. The speaker never really interacts with the other person. They just go on and on and on. Blah, 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 blah. Ambiguous response. An ambiguous response contains a message with more than one meaning. The words are highly abstract or have meanings private to the speaker alone. Like, what? Incongruous. An incongruous response contains two messages that seem to deny or contradict each other, one at the verbal level and one at the nonverbal level. So the person speaks words, but their nonverbal communication says the opposite. Incongruous. Okay, moving on to 345, defensiveness, defensiveness, defensiveness. Oh, I'd like to spend about uh, an hour here talking about defensiveness. I'll do my best not to. So if I could at least uh, put a pin here and ask you to dig deeper, dive deeper on this, because I truly believe that um, this area of defensiveness and especially um, arousing defensiveness, we've talked about it in other chapters, but defense arousal, when communicators deliberately attempt to arouse defensiveness in others is very detrimental and is very disconfirming and creates a hostile communication climate and makes it very difficult for interpersonal relationships to um, create intimacy. And so uh, spend some time in understanding your uh, patterns of uh, arousing defensiveness in others and or the other side is reacting harshly to attempts by others to arouse your defensiveness. So this works both ways. A person may deliberately try to arouse defensiveness in another person, and the other person can interpret these attempts at defense arousal harshly and then fight back in a very uh, personal way. So to the degree that you can recognize when you are attempting to arouse others' defensiveness and likewise when you can respond rationally uh, stay emotionally stable when you interpret another person's communication as an attempt to arouse your defensiveness. Because typically what happens is someone interprets the behavior defensively, meaning they interpret the communication as a personal attack. And then once we interpret the communication as a personal attack, it makes sense that we would like to defend ourselves our presenting self so we will we will put up walls to make sure that we're protected and those walls oftentimes are uh, negative um, behavior and or dysfunctional responses and oftentimes there's emotional instability involved and then it's so easy for the both of the communicators to then create dysfunctional behavior 
and unfortunately sometimes destructive behavior. So there's my introduction to defensiveness. It's no surprise that disconfirming and disagreeing message messages can pollute a communication climate. Perhaps the most predictable reaction to a hostile or indifferent message is defensiveness. The word defensiveness suggests protecting yourself from an attack, but what kind of attack? Seldom when you become defensive is a physical threat involved. Now, sometimes it can, but in, in, if we're talking about interacting with people that you have some um, level of intimacy with uh, prior to the interaction, it rarely will involve a physical threat. But if someone said, I'm gonna, I'd like to punch you in the nose, you would also respond defensively, but that would be emotionally and physically. You might put your hands up in front of your face or you might just turn and run away. Those, both of those reactions, putting your hands up in front of your face and or running away would also, they would be considered defensive, but that would be uh, both emotionally and physically defensive behaviors. But we're mainly talking about here is emotional uh, responses. So it says, to answer this question about uh, what kind of attack, we need to talk more about the notions of presenting self and face. And if you look back at chapter three, they've already been discussed, but it says here, recall that presenting self consists of the physical traits, the personality characteristics, the attitudes, the aptitudes, and all other parts of the image you want to present to the world. Actually, it is a mistake to talk about a single face. We try to project different selves to different people. For instance, you may want to try to impress a potential employer with your seriousness, but your friend sees you as a joker. So it is true that we will have um, multiple presenting selves, different selves, depending upon a context. If you think about being at work, maybe in a customer service environment, and maybe a customer um, tells you to F off and how you would respond or how you should respond to that uh, versus how maybe a good friend or even an intimate uh, partner tells you to F off the kind of emotional uh, psychological response to those different kinds of interactions and if they just said the same thing. So why would the one at work probably not create a great deal of emotional instability and insecurity but of course, if that came from a partner, um, especially an exclusive romantic partner, how that would create um, a great deal of emotional instability and other types of um, negative um, relational dysfunction. It says here on page 347, when others are willing to accept and acknowledge important parts of our presenting image, there's no need to feel defensive. On the other hand, when others confront us with face-threatening acts, messages that we perceive as challenging that challenge the image of what, who we want to project, we are likely to resist what they say. Defensiveness then is the process of protecting our presenting self or face. It is the process of protecting our presenting self or face. Although responding defensively to a face-threatening attempt may seem logical over time, defensiveness erodes relational stability mainly because it takes effort and energy um, to defend one's self against these kinds of face-threatening acts. If you think of it in a physical sense, um, some of you may have been in fights maybe where you were a victim or maybe you were victimized and you were just trying to defend yourself, but let's just say 
it was kind of a mutual fight. And um, so you would, from a physical perspective, you could be worn out, right? So you could be wrestling with somebody, fighting with somebody, and you could be fatigued, and then you could be worn out. And so it's the same kind of, use as an analogy, that um, time and time again, if you're trying to, ha on, a, on a regular basis, you're having to defend your face from these face-threatening attempts, it does wear people down, and it does erode relational stability, which makes intimacy very, very difficult. Okay, so it says here, you can understand how defensiveness operates by imagining what may happen if an important party presenting self were attacked. Consider how you'd feel if a friend called your, calls you self-centered or your boss labeled you as lazy. You'd probably feel threatened if those attacks were untrue. But your own experience will probably show that you sometimes respond defensively, even when you know the other person's criticism is justified. For instance, you have probably responded defensively at times when you did make a mistake, acted selfishly, or cut corners in your work. In fact, we often feel most offensive when criticism is right on target. Yeah, that's true. The topics that trigger defensiveness vary, right? So you've heard of these things, trigger triggers or triggering events. So the topics that trigger defensiveness vary. Sometimes sensitive subjects are personal. You may feel strongly to protect your image of an athletic skill or intelligence, whereas in another person might be more concerned about appearing fashionable or funny. It says here defense-provoking topics vary by sex or gender. In one study, men interpreted messages about mental and physical errors more defensively than women. Men and women got equally defensive over messages about their clothes and hair but women got more defensive over messages regarding uh, weight. Uh, that one about men and women getting defensive about their hair, uh, I'm not so sure I'm, I'm, I'm uh, thinking that's a reliable, um, that's a reliable interpretation. Professional women report a variety of face-threatening interactions at work, particularly with men in traditionally male occupations. Who offers the potentially defensive rousing remark or criticism also matters. It kind of makes sense. Who does it? Again, at work, if it, someone said something rude or offensive, you may just chalk it up to, you know, that's at work and that happens at work. But again, if it happens at home or happens in a, in a good friendship or an intimate relationship, uh, because of the prior relationship and the boundaries and expectations about healthy functional relationships, of course, it would that defense arousing remark would matter more, and the response would be uh, different for sure. So, so far we talked about defensiveness as if it's if it's only the responsibility of the person who feels threatened. If this were the case, then the pres prescription was simply here: it is grow it, grow a thick skin, admit your flaws, and stop trying to manage your impressions. This approach isn't just realistic; it also ignores the role played by those who send face-threatening messages. Those senders. Those people who are out there sending face-threatening messages one after the other. So what about those people? In fact, competent communicators protect others' faces as well as their own. But here's the problem. You're not going to be able to control others and if and when they send face-threatening messages. You won't be able to control that. Now, a good boundary setting would say that if that was a pattern or that was a habit and you announced uh, that that uh, is the limit and if they continue, then you would then 
discontinue, uh, at least move away from the um, individual, create distance. It could be, you know, it could be moving back a few feet or moving to a different room or leaving the house or getting in the car or leaving the car, or it could be um, a dissolution of the relationship, right? So here's the problem is that we can only control what we can control. So if you find yourself being aroused defensively, then you'll have to find some strategies to respond uh, in a non-aggressive, hostile manner, and that may be a difficult. That may be difficult depending upon the context. So even though it talks about these other people who send these messages, it's very difficult to control them. So control what you can. It says here, competent communicators protect others' faces as well as their own. That is true. Good people will do that. This face work leads to less defensive responses, for sure. So, you know, do the best you can as a communicator not to arouse defensiveness in others, and also do the best you can that when you're having, when you interpret other people's messages as defense arousing, to find strategies to resist escalating uh, emotionally and or responding in a, a defensive manner that um, creates greater dysfunction or a greater conflict. Okay, so we're going to end part one uh, there, um, stopping on page 349 if you are following along. And then the second part will pick up on page 349 under the um, heading of climate patterns. This is Professor Defano out.